It's going to be a tough one to preach. It's going to be even a tougher one to hear. By the way, before I get into that, we nobody said anything about the picnic after the 10 o'clock service. There's a picnic after the 10 o'clock service. That's why half of us are dressed like this. The other, the other reason is we just like to dress like this. But uh, it wasn't in the bulletin, so I didn't want any of you to think that, that uh, it was uh, canceled. Let me go over with you just quickly the historical background of this passage so that you can begin to get into the feeling of what happened. There was a group of people that came to Jesus and they reported to him about a tragedy that had happened in Jerusalem. That Galileans, who were always kind of in there, I mean, anytime you saw a political movement happening, Galileans were kind of in the center of it. They weren't afraid of too much. Galileans had been slaughtered in their sacrifices. Now, this can come from two different places. First of all, uh, about this time, Pilate knew that Jerusalem needed a new water supply and so he was going to build an aqueduct and part of the money that he wanted to build that aqueduct with came was from the temple. People didn't want their monies to be used from the temple to build a Roman aqueduct. And so there was a slaughter that took place uh, out of their protest. Um, this could be reference to that slaughter. There also could be the possibility that uh, because of some local political dispute that during the time of Passover, which is the only time that people actually themselves offered the sacrifices in the temple, um, they, the Romans came in and killed all the people or killed many of the people, some of the people when they were offering their sacrifices. I imagine many of them uh, scattered. But either way, these are coming with a fresh report. The Greek is very, very explicit. If you know the Greek, the, 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 the uh, connotation of the Greek is this is fresh news. All right? This has just happened. And they come with this report to Jesus. And Jesus <clears throat> knows, first of all, a couple of things. Just from their tone of voice... He knows that there are two ways you can avoid your own sinfulness. One is to theologize, to get into some intellectual discussion about it. And the second is to concentrate on somebody else's sinfulness. Those are the two ways we avoid confrontation with God. Intellectualize and concentrate on somebody else. Now there was a tone in this voice. Now I want you to note the, the, the words in there. Their blood was mingled with the blood of the sacrifices. You notice how graphic that is? Didn't come in and just say, hey, there's a bunch of believers that got killed here. They are very graphic as to what they are trying to incite Jesus to get angry about this, to get excited about this. Thereby avoiding their own guilt. Look at this horrible thing that happened over here. Jesus won't buy it. Did you ever have somebody come up to you and report a piece of gossip that you love to hear? I mean, you really, and, you, and you try to, you know, well, let's, let's think why this happened, you know, so that we can concentrate on them. I remember being outside when we were little. I, I grew up in a small town, and, and uh, we played kick the can every night and hide and go seek until it got real dark, until the parents got real mad at us and called us in. It's dark out there. You're going to injure yourselves. Well, it got so dark one night, <clears throat> finally... Little Denny Adams had to go home and said, man, i got to go home. My parents are going to beat me now. My, you know, the corporal punishment back there was the, back then was the norm. It wasn't child abuse. I mean, it was just, 
you know, you got a whack and you thought about it next time. So anyhow, Denny Adams, and for some reason, I think it was Denny or Buddy Kurtzman followed him. And he came back to the group. I mean, we're all gathered around, you know, and he said, man, did he get a beating? And we all said, in unison, really? Tell us about it. How many whacks? And the guy goes, eight, eight whacks. Man, that is a beating on the butt or the legs, the butt. Oh, we all, we all ran around like this. Paddle our hand, paddle. Oh, that thing. We all ran around. Now listen, we're all standing around in the dark. We're, it's so dark we can hardly see each other. Our parents are at least as strict as Denny Adams. We don't even, it never crosses our mind that if he's in trouble, we're in trouble. <laughs> never crossed our mind. We were enjoying that so much. Never dawned on us. All of us went home, got beat anyhow. But see, it, we didn't take it for us. It was so much fun listening <laughs> to Denny Adams beating. You know, it was just, it was, you know, you're vicariously, you just kind of, <laughs> that's what was happening here. Their blood was mingled with the blood of the sacrifices. <gasps> Jesus wouldn't buy into it. Would not buy into it. Look what he says here. <clears throat> he says, do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I'll tell you no, but unless you repent, you'll all likewise perish. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell, the Tower of Siloam was right by the aqueduct that they were building. And so when this fell over and killed Jews, then it would be natural to assume that because they were working on a pagan project, God had punished them. It was also natural to assume, now the word here um, um, in, in this scripture is translated culprit, but it's different than the, than the other sinner. It's a different, it's a different mix. It's a different uh, uh, Greek word. And it means literally debtor. And so what they could have been thinking was, here these guys took money from the temple to build that aqueduct. And the guys who are working on the aqueduct, the Jews who are working on the aqueduct, are getting paid that temple money to work on a pagan project. So therefore, they are greater debtors than we are. I mean, it's one thing if we don't pay our full tithe. But man, when you take God's money and do raunchy things with it, you're a greater debtor than I am. See how we compare ourselves? Notice also, Jesus covers both angles. He covers both the event that happens to us because of someone else's cruelty, i.e., a human being lands on us and kills us, and he covers the accident. No human can figure out why that happened. There was no free will involved. It just fell. It wasn't sabotage, it just fell. So there's both categories of why a person could be divinely punished here. And he's saying, wait a minute. You're theologizing too fast. You're formulizing too much. It's too simple. Don't do that. Don't automatically assume you know why. That's a very dangerous thing. In the first place, you are starting to categorize degrees of sinners. Now, I'll tell you how to categorize the degrees of sinners. If you want to know how to do that, turn to Romans 3.23. I'll show you how many degrees of sinners there are. Romans 
Many of you have that memorized. Just think of the second word in that verse. How many degrees of sinners are there in that verse? One, one degree of sinners. One category. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. When we assume punishment... We assume that somebody else has somehow pushed a button with God nobody else pushed. When we assume our own punishment, it is for some sort of self-flagellation that says, Oh God, I'm a greater sinner than anybody else. Nobody's ever lived like I've lived. Nobody's ever been as rotten as I've been rotten. So therefore, you must be punishing me. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says what? No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is what? common to man. There's one category and we're all in it. So watch out theologizing as to whose sin is worse than whose other. Just because one sin's more socially acceptable is no more acceptable to God. One category and we're all in it. And Jesus is saying, hold up here. Don't assume that because a tragedy happens, it is a punishment. I know that's our natural reaction. When we are the center of our universe, we believe everything that happens is our fault. We automatically assume it's our fault. And we're that way from the time we're little kids. You know when parents split up, the kids assume it's their fault. You know when something bad happens to a friend, when there's an accident that a friend is involved in and you're a little kid, you feel like somehow if I'd have invited him over that day, I could have prevented that. Jesus is saying, cut that out. Quit it. Don't automatically theologize yourself into the center of the universe. You're no more important than anybody else. All of this works together. However, See, that's the good news I just gave you. That's not the tough part to hear. Here comes the tough part to hear. I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. You know, Pharisees always made the automatic assumption that all calamity was personal punishment. If you read the discourse on Job, there is that assumption. When Jesus comes across the blind man in John 9, 1, uh, the disciples make the automatic assumption, who was it that sinned? Was it this man that sinned or was it his parents that sinned? You know, there's got to be somebody who caused this. And Jesus said, wait a minute. There you go again. However... He also says that it takes a change in direction in order to avoid the natural consequences for our sin because we are all under judgment. We all motor our way toward condemnation and God will not save us from the consequences of our own sin. That's the tough part to hear. Everything that comes upon us... Well, wait a minute. Let me, let me rethink that statement. We are all subject to an accumulation 
of consequences. And we don't know how we're doing right now, spiritually, because it's all a matter of what has accumulated thus far. When somebody asks you, how are you doing? You usually say, fine. I would like to suggest to you another answer. I don't know yet. All I know is how I have done in the past. I can tell you my present state by what has accumulated in my past. I don't know how I'm doing yet. I won't know how I'm doing now until later. I won't know how I'm doing now until later. Because that's the way it happens. All of life is an accumulation. And there is something to watch out for here. There is a confrontation in life that comes to us where if we don't look on it as punishment, at least we ought to look on it as a warning. I remember the first time I ever tried to steal something. Small town, riding down, there's all kinds of, you know, places. you could ride your bike anywhere in Shelby. And there were two drugstores in town, Hex Drugstore and Struble's Drugstore. And, and Struble's Drugstore had this huge picture window in it. And inside there was a whole row of books. And Army and I, my buddy and I, were in there and we were hanging around, you know. And I was just hitting adolescence, just hitting puberty, and I was real curious. And they had these men's magazines up there, you know, for men only and stag and stuff like that. Now, it wasn't anything to compare with what magazines are today, but I would have taken them today. I didn't care. I just wanted to look. And, of course, any responsible adult back then wouldn't let a young kid look at something like that. So we just kind of hanging around, looking at the comic books, till the manager was gone. I took one of those things, had on a sweater, and just put it under my sweater. And I said, Army, let's go. And he said, we haven't been in here very long. I said, come on, get it. Come on, let's go. Okay. Went outside. Our bikes were parked outside. And I said, Army, facing the store now. Big picture window. <laughs> Army. He said, what? What are you acting so squirrely for? Look what I got. Pulled it up, and here's this magazine, and as I pulled it up, my eyes went up, and there was the manager standing right in the picture window. He went like this to me. I walked in. He said, son, even if you had the money for that, do you think your parents would want you to buy that? I said, no, sir. Boy, I was ash oh, shame flooded me. I'm thinking to myself, and he, and, he, and he says, he follows it up like this. Do you want me to tell your parents what you've done here? And I'm thinking to myself, this guy doesn't know who my parents are. But am I going to tempt this? Nuh-uh. I said, no, sir. I don't want you to tell him. He said, well, then go put it back. Now, I walked out of there and rode like the wind home. I mean, I was shaking, I was sweating. It was absolutely awful. If there was ever an 11th commandment, it ought to be this. Blessed is he who gets nailed the first time. <laughs> you know what? It was absolutely awful. And I was thinking how what a bad kid I was and how God was punishing me, okay? Because I was a raunchy kid. And I... 
On the other hand, I was thinking, but I didn't really get caught. I mean, he, he'd let me go, and, and this is going to be okay. Now, there are two dynamics that happen that cause this is punishment. One is thinking you're a raunchy person, but the other, person, the other is there's a need inside of all of us to get caught. We want to be clean. We want to confess that. When we hint around that stuff, we are wanting to get caught. And when I went home at the supper table, my mom asked, as she always did, what'd you do today? And I said, well, I went, usually I'd say, my army and I just messed around. But, you know, there was this need inside of me to kind of tell my mom about it, but not really tell my mom about it. So I said, well, we went downtown and we went into this store, we went into that store, and we went into the Hex drugstore. Stopped. Mom said, you know, it's the funniest thing, I never told you. John Heck, the manager of that store, when your father and I first got married, he babysat for you. <laughs> that man has changed your diapers. He knows you in some very intimate ways. Burst out into sweat again. <laughs> now here's the point. The point to think that the calamities that befall our lives are punishment is not always theologically correct, but neither is it always theologically incorrect. You can't make that automatic assumption, but neither can you assume God's not nailing me. Okay? Because God does nail us in various ways. It's just on down the line usually. But take seriously that need inside of you to get that out and to get clean. That's where that automatic assumption of punishment comes from. There is a voice inside of us, a spirit inside of us that wants to be clean. Jesus taught that while tragedies are not automatic assumptions of punishment, they are still inevitably inevitably going to result in the destruction of our lives. They just plain are. That's how the world works. Becky came to me the other day and she said, I've, I've read a neat definition of insanity. I said, what is it? She said, insanity is doing the same thing again and again and again and expecting different results. If we want our lives to get better, we've got to change them. We can't do the same thing again and again and again. We have to repent. Repentance means a change in direction. Now, there are two Old Testament words for repentance. One is nahum, which, which is a deep emotional word. It means uh, to grieve or to feel bad about. And the other one is sug. And it means to change your behavior, to turn around and walk toward God. The New Testament word, Greek word is metanoio, and it means the same thing, to turn around. Because you have changed your mind, your body turns around. You know, when our kids get in trouble, used to be this way anyhow when they were little, their first response was, I'm sorry. And Becky would always say to them, <clears throat> Are you sorry that you got caught? Or are you sorry that you did it? And are you sorry enough to stop? 
That's what God says to us. There's two things of sorry. There's a Nahum, oh, I regret it, I'm in pain, I'm caught. And then there's a sug that says, I'm not messing with this anymore. You know, since that day in Shelby, Ohio, I have never been tempted to steal. Never once because I got nailed and I changed my mind and God was merciful to perform his judgment that day because it was ine inevitable. Now, inevitably, inevitably, I would have gotten caught and I would have gotten nailed, but I, haven't, I didn't hurt as many people along the way. Do you know that in every major living religion, <clears throat> I'm doing a, the research I told you about for my kids, <clears throat> reading a book that is cross-reference scripture of every religion right now in the world, all the major ones, because you can't go into the little tribal religions, but all the major ones. One of the things, one of the book I'm, I'm reading right now is called The Essential Unity of All Religions. And one of the things that every religion recognizes is that you will reap what you sow. That simple. It is that simple. That if you sow selfishness, if you continue to go your own way, if you separate yourself from God, you will destroy your life and the lives of those around you. Every religion in the world says that. <clears throat> I went up, elders flew me up to talk, uh, to meet with a bunch of other pastors that, from all over the country. I flew up to Chicago Tuesday. <clears throat> About 25 of us, <clears throat> pardon me, from all over the country. And on the way back, uh, four of us flew back for, uh, that had, uh, were in the southeast quadrant of the country. And we had a layover in Charlotte. And we got to talking about the Lord and about how He works and about our churches. And one of the brothers had somebody that was in a distinct leadership place in his, in his uh, church that was major just walking in his own direction and exercising his own power. He wasn't a man of prayer. He wasn't a man of a submissive spirit. He was just destroying the church. And there was every reason in the world for that church to prosper spiritually. But it wasn't. And it surprised me that the three of us remaining pastors, every one of us could tell a story that we'd been the pastor of a church where either during a period of our life when we were out of sync with God or a major leader in that church had been walking in his own way instead of God's way and the church was just held right where it was. It was not fruitful. It was just held. And as soon as that leader repented or got out of the way, and in every case with us, he had gotten out of the way, he'd left the church, that church, we hadn't done anything different, but that church just bloomed, just prospered. Now you can't assume that if a church is, is not prospering, that there's automatically sin in the leadership. You can't make that kind of connection, but you can make the connection. That if there is sin in the leadership, thanks, brother. <clears throat> if there's sin in the leadership, that that church is going to be harmed by that leadership. That, that family is going to be, going to be stagnant and non-fruitful because of that leadership. Well, let's talk about, let's talk about that last paragraph because I, I don't want to miss that. He began telling this parable. A certain man had a fig tree 
which had been planted in his vineyard. Now, that wasn't unusual back then. Good ground was so, um, so hard to come by that whenever they got some, they planted everything in the same spot. And he came looking for fruit on it. Now, the, in that territory, fig trees bloom three times a year, in the early spring, in the summer, and in the autumn. So if he would come year after year, he would have looked for fruit on it three, during three seasons of the year. Now, remember, this is not a seedling. He wouldn't be looking for fruit on it unless it were capable of bearing fruit. This is a full-grown tree that has all of the capabilities of any other tree, apparently. And he said to the vineyard keeper, Behold, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? In other words, I can plant a good tree here. And he answered and said to him, Let it alone, sir, for this year too. Now I want you, who do you suppose the vineyard keeper is? Huh? Jesus Christ, right. The reason you know that is because he is the intercessor for us with the Father. If you will turn to Romans 8.34, it says, Christ Jesus is he who died... <clears throat> Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. <clears throat> so the God of the judgment is held up by the God of the intercession, by the God of the, of the, past, the, the one with the pastoral heart. Also, in Hebrews 7, let me see, 7, 5, I think it was... 725, I'm sorry. Hence also he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. So in this parable, Jesus Christ is the intercessor. He's the vineyard keeper. Let it alone, sir, for this year too until I dig around it and put in fertilizer and if it bears fruit next year, fine, but if not, cut it down. Now here's the point. <clears throat> you were put here, weren't you, to produce. You weren't put here to exist. Now, what, the sick end of that is people who are compulsive and don't feel any sense of self-worth unless they are producing what in their mind is a lot. That's not the key. But neither is the key for somebody to grab your teeth and say, God just loves you so much, you don't have to do anything, you just sit there. Are you kidding me? He put you in here. He put you down here to give. That's the key. And someday you've got to come to the place where you give. Now, as far as God is concerned, there is always a time when you can repent and go His way as far as He is concerned. As long as you are on this earth, you have a chance to do that. But... Realistically speaking, you and I all know people who have gone their own way and there was a time of tenderness in their heart. There was a time that they could have changed. There was a time that they could have come back to the Lord. There was a window of time that was very, very, very important for them to come before the Lord and say, not my will, but your will. And you and I both know of people who have passed that window of time and their heart has grown hard 
And realistically speaking, they're never coming back. They're never coming back. They have gone out of that path, and they will never be gods again. You and I both know people like that. When you are undergoing conviction in your life, it's time to repent. Because if you don't, during that window of time, you know what's going to happen? The natural course of events is going to take place, and all of a sudden, you're going to grow up your own theology. Something that turns your attention away from yourself. And you're going to rationalize why this is really not all that bad to God. As a matter of fact, I've had people come into my office consistently with behavior that directly contradicts the Scripture and say to me, you know, I think God really wants me to do this. And I am totally blown away. And I say, you're deceiving yourself. John 1, 8, he who thinks he has no sin deceives himself, and the truth is not in him. That's the natural course of events. We will either design our own special theology to where we are not the sinner, that there's some sort of interpretation of Scripture that really doesn't make us change, or we will concentrate on everybody else and say, they're so bad, I don't have to change. Because God, if, that, if God accepts them, He accepts me. And you know what Jesus would say to those people? Unless you change, you're going to perish. It's just that simple. It's not my will that you perish. That's why I've delayed for so long. It's not my will that any should perish. But I've just got to tell you straight up today, there are some of you here that are in the middle of major sin. And unless you change, and change while your heart is tender, you can walk out that door and never come back. Or you can find yourself some sort of nominal church that will baby you and coddle you and never tell you the truth. The truth is that sin will destroy your life and it will destroy the life of your wife and your children and your friends and your church. It destroys. And I wish it didn't. And I wish I could stand up here and just tell you that God loves you and all you need to do is exist and just love Him back. But that's not what Scripture says. You've got to change. You've got to change. If there's something that God has been dealing with you in your life, and it's not even that big a thing, when you start to cover that and separate it from the rest of your life, say, well, this is just a little thing. That doesn't really matter. You are just building a process that will eventually eat your life away. Got to change. Got to change. Some of you I know right now are walking with God, but there will be times in your life that are major milestones. And you will come up to a place where you say, well, you know, life's not going all that bad right now. This is a wonderful... I mean, people just come in and say, I'm comfortable with my relationship with God, as if that were the point. The point is not how comfortable you are. 
The point is how comfortable God is with your relationship with God. That's the point. I'm happy with my relationship. Not the point. Is Christ happy with you? That's the point. For your health, for my health, and again, I say these things to myself. I'm not preaching to you. I'm preaching to myself, and you're overhearing it. When there is something in our life that we need to change, the time is now. Now is the day of salvation. There may be some of you in here who have never decided to follow Christ. I don't mean believe in Him. Satan believes in Him. I mean to follow Him and have never made a commitment. Today's the day. Today's the day. Don't walk away from here knowing that's what you need to do because you might pass the window of time and you might be cut down and thrown into the fire. It's that simple. Let's take some time and let God bring to us those things that we need to pay attention to today. Those things that we need to repent of. Those things we need to change so that we can be fruitful. Don't think about anybody else. And don't think about your own theology. Think about God. And think about whether or not you want to live with Him. Because to live with Him, you have to follow Him His way, not your way. If there is anybody in here who <clears throat> has not accepted Christ, I'm going to say a prayer that will help you do that, and I want you to tell me afterwards that you have accepted Christ so I can help you grow in that way. If there are people in here who have some significant things that they need help with, conversation with, with an elder. And we do have elders that walk with God, and they at least have a pure heart. I want you to come to me and let me point you to one of Him. Because you know what? When you confess your sins, it takes all of the scare, all of the inflated condemnation out of Satan. You, it's just real relaxed to say, I'm dealing with this. I need help with it. And half of the fear goes away at that point when you confess your sin to somebody else. So I want you to do that. I'm going to spend some time up here after the service, milling around over there. Come up to me. Let me help you. But if you know what you need to do, and you don't need advice, and you don't need counsel, you just need to do it, then do it. Would you pray with me? Father, we're about to listen to a song that echoes our hearts. We know for a while we've built up walls that would keep you out and let us hide as Adam did behind a bush with our own sin, thinking that no one would know or that no one really cared. But you called out that day and you're calling out today. You're wanting us to change so that we do not destroy ourselves and other people. Help us to be adults and to not hide any longer. For those of us who have not decided to follow Christ, help us to admit our sin 
and to admit that we are powerless and we are out of control of our own lives and that we would like Jesus Christ to come and live in our hearts right now, right today, and take control. For the rest of us who have done that, help us to admit we are also powerless over our various forms of addiction and sin habits, that we need Christ every bit as badly as the first-time believer. Help us follow you before it's too late. In Jesus' name, amen.